everybody. This is Jeff Morton and my co-host, Dr. Dina Dye. Hello, Dana. Uh, Dina. Shalom. How are you? I'm good. I'm. I'm. Uh, yes, it's good. It's Rosh Hashanah, the new yep. year. We uh we both got an opportunity to celebrate the new year, the the civil year, according to the God of the Bible. And uh, I know I went to a function last night. Outside ministries, there was probably. Oh, I don't know. There was probably four or five thousand people in the room. Or no, Unbelievable. No, not that many. There, there's only seats twenty eight hundred, but there was. It was pretty packed. We actually were in Casey Treats congregation here in um, Federal Way, Washington, which was kind of interesting. I don't know if most of the folks out there are going to know who Casey Treat was or is, but they have this beautiful building. I mean, beautiful building, and we were there, but the beautiful thing about it was the place was full of Christians learning about Rosh Hashanah, and I Amen. thought that was excellent. How about oh, you? Yeah. What did you do last night? Uh, yeah, we, have a, we had a sort of, ours was quite a bit smaller. <laughs> um, it's a, kind of an in-house family thing. Uh, I don't know, we had maybe close 80 to 100, yeah. and... Uh, yeah, I did a teaching for everybody last night, so they were all pretty excited about that. And then a friend of mine baked a giant hollow loaf round with raisins and cinnamon. Oh my gosh, it was so good. It was just right out of the oven, hot, delicious. That was the best part of the night. <laughs> That's the only time that the, the hollow is round is on Rosh Hashanah, right? Yes, because it represents a crown. Crown, and right. so, yes, one of the messages of Rosh Hashanah is the coronation of the king, which, of course, we've been talking about quite a bit, and that is really, I, I maintain, the story that we have of Adam being crowned as king and all of the elements that go along with the enthronement. So that was kind of fun to bring all those sort of things in. Uh, I did talk quite a bit about the ancient world and how kingship functioned and uh, the meaning of that and tied it into uh, the day of the Lord, Rosh Hashanah, day of judgment. That was, uh, yeah, it was. Uh, I think overall the message was well received and uh, the folks were certainly engaged and interested in the material because I don't really teach the same way everybody else does about things. So, uh, yeah, they, they enjoyed it. Well, we had Al Shaddai Ministries, and uh, <clears throat> Pastor Mark, you know, he did a Rosh Hashanah service, and we had, I don't know, probably 200 shofars blowing. Oh, my gosh, that must have been loud. It was amazing. It, it really was amazing. And, uh, you know, I, I think the best part about all of this for me is to see the Christian audience growing. Yeah. This understanding. And, you know, we had, there was a lot of folks there, and there was a lot of first-time people there last night. And it was just nice to see that. There's more to the story, and we as Christian believers, I know you grew up Jewish, but we're starting to um, kind of give the scriptures back to Israel and uh, see them from a different light. And I, I, that's just what the whole program that we do is all about, returning to Eden. And I saw a lot of Christian uh, folks last night returning back to the Bible from a Hebraic lens. Anyway, so what else should I, you know, it was a good thing to see all of the folks out there, and of course, you know, you know from conversations you and I have had many, many times, my heart's cry is to see the Christian connected to the ancient world so that we can see the biblical world from their lens. You know, this is probably 
the greatest passion of my life today. So it was really nice for me to see the audience full of people learning not necessarily the Jewishness of the Bible, but the intent of God Almighty through Israel to show us what he was doing. And I like to say it that way. There's a kingdom. Israel functioned in the same way. They were kings over the nations. Well, the nations were their subjects. It's not like God abandoned the nations and it's all about Israel. It's about Israel's subjects, the nations, and how she treated them and how she was to mediate between them and God. And we seem to forget that. And now we all just want to be Israel. We don't want to be the nations. But, you know, that's not how that works. And so, in the end, you know, we read about Zechariah, about how all the nations came up to, uh, to Zion, to Persukot. So, you know, it's, it's okay to be one of the nations. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, I am and one of we, the nations. I, I know exactly yeah. what you mean. That's why I don't, I don't do the first century uh, garment change. <laughs> I don't know how to say it any other way. I, <laughs> I'm just a black dude from New York being reconnected to the kingdom of God as one of the members of the nation that he yeah. created. So uh, I understand that completely. Yeah. Well, we've come to this place because we associate nations with Gentiles and pagans that we don't recognize the value. The nations need to be subdued by the king of kings, not by the current kings running the show, because right. the kings outside the covenant of God are destroying the nations. They're destroying the people in it. They are keeping them enslaved and oppressed. Only Israel could be the king, servant, to free them and deliver them in order for them to make a covenant with God. Well, you know, haphazardly, Israel did that. I always tell folks, you know, and particularly when I'm talking to Christians who are, you know, struggling with my conversation, go, well, why do you read the Bible that the Jews wrote? You don't want to know anything about Israel, and it's, it, it's like a paradigm shift for, the, for a lot of them when they think about it, because the question's never really been asked. I mean, if Israel didn't do its job <clears throat> 2,000 years ago or 3,800 years ago, however they did it, the Lord was, was guiding them through it, you wouldn't have the book that you read. So anyway, I wanted to kind of go somewhere tonight. I wanted to just kind of get your thoughts on something I've been thinking about, and I'll let you go wherever you want to go with it. We had, um, I believe that the second temple's destruction is what John is writing about, part of what John is writing about in the book of Revelation. I, I think that what Daniel prophesied is actually happening, and John is like the caboose, confirming the matter, if you will, or telling the same story. And then we have nothing for 2,000 years uh, when it comes to prophets on the caliber of Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah. There's just nothing there. For 2,000 years, we don't have, we have a lot of hyperbole, we have a lot of innuendo for 2,000 years, but we don't have the prophets of Israel. <clears throat> and that's a question I went, you know, why is that, Father? Why, God, did you go silent until 1948? Maybe you can kind of jump in there and shed some light on the question for me, even. 
Well, we have to look at the purpose of the prophets. Okay, and I know we typically define a prophet as one who, you know, foretells the future. But really that is not the actual meaning of the prophet. Uh, the true meaning of the prophet is the one who brings forth inner fruit. That was his job. But who are the prophets dealing with all through Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah? We think about, of course, yeah, and, it, and you know, the prophet Isaiah covers five different kings. I'm going to emphasize that. The prophets are moving and addressing and dealing with the state of Israel, in particular their kings. Where are their kings? Their kings are, you know, their, their base, their throne is in the temple. The temple is standing, so therefore there is a, a constitution that's in place. There's a judicial, economic, commercial, religious uh, part of the nation. The government, yes. the government exactly. <laughs> so these prophets are functioning in that context. The government of Israel, the king on the throne, good or bad, the temple standing. So we see that all through the kings, that the five different kings that Isaiah was serving under. Then we jump into the periods of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Of course, under Jeremiah, we have King Nebuchadnezzar who comes and destroys the temple, and Israel goes off into exile. exile. So in exile, the message comes forth for, from Ezekiel, for example, to not forget to rebuild the temple, to return to the land, you know, in order that the king will seat, be seated on the throne again and rule and reign. Of course, the last king of Israel in the, under the kings of Judah would be uh, Zedekiah. And uh, he goes, wasn't he the one that got his eyes plucked out? You yes. know, he, was he killed? I can't remember. I, I think, I think so. he was. Yeah. The last, the last king was. Yeah, Zedekiah, who was the uncle of Jehoiachin, who was Koniahu, Yekadiah, who was a really bad king. He was the king in which the prophecy, if you will, or the curse came upon him and to, from his fruit, you know, there would not, the, the king, the kingship would die within his loins. And so uh, I, now this is my personal opinion and I'm pretty sure mostly everybody won't agree with me and it's okay. But I think that the temple that Ezekiel is describing and the visions that he has is reminding people of the first temple. And so he is trying to, they, you remember, I mean, the, the first temple was like this amazing thing in the world of the time. And now it's no longer, you know, it's just an ash heap. So he's trying to remind them of what their life was like when the temple was standing, in particular under the dynasty of King David. That's really the key of the whole thing, King David's dynasty. And then we get to King Jehoiachin, the dynasty is like cut off. And so they've, they've been, you know, they've been in exile. These prophets were there in order to remind the people of a time when they would return and rebuild. And so if you'll recall, when they went back to the land, they did not rebuild right away. There was a lot of opposition until finally they got around to it. I think around 520 uh, BCE is when they finally, under King Darius, is when they finally started to build the temple. And 
some have it that they it was finished around 515 I mean we don't really know exactly but in that time we're back into the period of now we go through Zechariah and Haggai those prophets and they're once again the reminder rebuild the temple rebuild the temple well what do you have to have to rebuild the temple you gotta have the land, the land right. right that's key right. you can't just go back there if, you know to you need to be restored to the land to rebuild the house and return the government to its proper place so right. all the prophets in one measure or form or another are dealing with this issue so then after Yeshua is raised from the dead and uh, un of course the Romans destroy the temple in 70 common era and the land is overrun by Rome and everything else and the children of Israel are scattered into the Roman Empire eventually to all points all over the globe do we have a land of Israel no we do not and in fact right. in the, those centuries uh, it was called well from the Philistine name Palestine and Hadrian renamed Jerusalem Aeolia Capitolina and then there was uh, Hadrian built a, uh, a a temple a Roman temple on top of the Temple Mount and then the Byzantines came in and for many centuries and then the Arabs the Caliphs and you know it goes through and the Marmalukes and all you know all the various ones and so it is all that time Israel children of Israel do are they don't have the land so a temple is never going to be built if they don't have the land and a government can't be established and a king can't sit on the throne so it all is quiet on the western front <laughs> there are no prophet now there's probably prophets in different corners reminding of the people to return to the land so you can kind of imagine uh, obviously there's people that never left I mean we're not arguing that point but at the time of Theodore Herzl in the 1800s as this move begins to go back to the land and so that culminates of course in 1948 which is huge and so this this groundswell to begin to rebuild is you know it just starts as a little seed but now I mean if you go to Israel now you hear it on every corner really I mean especially amongst the Orthodox community or the the sort of um, like the Temple Mount faithful and uh, what's that guy's like Gershom Solomon I mean there's all kinds that are just advocating for the rebuilding of the temple so it may well be in this generation that we do see a rise up of the prophets like the prophets of old I, I don't know I think the prophets always functioned in the context of the community so with the community being so scattered to the four corners the prophets spoke to everyone well if everyone's all over the globe there isn't I mean now we're capable of doing it with the internet but Ezekiel spoke to all of those in Babylon and Jeremiah to those in Egypt and you know Isaiah it was always in the context of, of the community so perhaps that explains some of it because we have not been you know the community has been so scattered well and I think I think you really are you're you're zeroing on on something that I was just really transfixed on and that was if the second temple was destroyed and if John was talking about it, Yochanan was talking about the second temple and all of those different things, then that great big gap that we've seen prior to 1948, 
you just explained really well because these prophets were focused on the governmental system of Israel mm -hmm. and trying to get the people to adhere to the laws of the covenant and return to the things that God had given to Moses and certainly to Adam all along the line. But we don't have Israel. We don't have Israel. And all of the pro prophecy messages, I call them the prophecies of YouTube, they, they overlook that fact, the fact that there is no people in the land other than the remnant. Therefore, there are no prophets like Ezekiel, like Daniel, like Jeremiah, like all of them. So, but then you have a replacement theology going on, and I don't even, I, I'm just going to mention that. I don't want to get into that. But that, that whole concept... Nobody in that entire 1,800-year period, you can't name one name. Right. You can't name one name. You can't name one prophet who did something so extraordinary on the same level over that 1,800-year period. Well, it would have been in local communities, you know, where there were uh, pockets, you know. I would imagine... Yeah, Pre-World War II, Poland, there were those prophets preparing the people for what was ahead. We just don't know about them. You know, right. They spoke in a language we're not familiar with. They may not have even written, but they were placed there to prepare the people for what was coming. And some listened and some didn't. And right. so I think, yeah. I think they are the unsung, unnamed heroes that we'll probably never know until we're all in that great temple in the sky. And so everything functioned within these uh, smaller communities in these places all over, the, all over the globe. Well, as we were talking, you said you wanted to bring up Joel, and I, I kind of think I know what you're talking about. But in terms of the role of the kings in the whole nine yards, I mean, we're, we're, in, the, we're in the fall feast. What was it about Joel that you were, you were going to talk to me about? talk to our audience about well it is it, it's a very uh, it's kind of part of the message I, I shared last night in that uh, one of the aspects of Rosh Hashanah and this is actually true for Yom Kippur and Sukkot each one of them was called the day of judgment mm -hmm. now we have kind of a warped view of what judgment is to the ancient world the king <laughs> the king was responsible to judge right uh, the God or our God in, in this case gave him the authority and you know to rule over and to quote judge but judgment to them meant they had the responsibility of maintaining the cosmos that's what judgment meant and so how does one maintain the cosmos by exercising you know right rulings by being fair and just and upholding the oppressed and uh, part of that would, you know, releasing the prisoners. And these were all elements of, of what, uh, what a righteous king would do, a righteous and just king. That was how that type of king maintained the cosmos. The opposite king caused the cosmos to collapse or become unstable. So the day of the Lord was associated with the enthronement of the king, the coronation of the king, and that was good news. Because if the king was seated on the throne and a good king 
then they knew that all order had come and everything was going to be great. Blessing, prosperity, etc. So Rosh Hashanah becomes this uh, festival in which, the, but this is exciting because this king is seated on the throne now and he will maintain the cosmos. And this is the good news of the day of the Lord. The flip side of, well, not really flip side. The other dimension of the day of the Lord is also if the king is seated on the throne, that means he doesn't have any enemies. He's just defeated them. So the message of our God is that on that day, Rosh Hashanah, he will defeat all the enemies, all the nations, all the rulers and leaders of the nations. And this is the definition, again, of what judgment is. What This is what the day of judgment really means. No, so that's... I really follow that because I had a rabbi, Charlie Schiffman. He said, you know, when you think of judgment, and I've tried, I can only paraphrase him, but he said, you, you think of this great big hand coming down and slapping you, man. Swatting everybody, yeah. Right, and he said, but judgment to, to the Jew was his word. To the Jew means that the right things are now going to take place. And he yes. said it was about correction not killing off right. creation. It was about right. correcting creation as opposed to killing it off. And the problem is, just like we see today, the nations are going to war against that correction. That's the problem. Yeah. Well, and their goal is to take out God and his subjects. <laughs> and to put themselves on the thrones in the Exactly. So this is the battle forever, but Okay, so uh, Rosh Hashanah was significant in that, you know, God had defeated all the enemies. That's the true meaning of the Day of Judgment, that the enemies, his enemies, our enemies, had been taken out. And, that, and this was all related to enthronement. Enthronement meant enemies gone. <laughs> all right? So the book of Joel is pretty unique. We don't actually know the dating for the book. And I think, honestly, it's by design. And I do think that the book has a lot. So God used the nations to correct Israel, just like you were talking about, to chastise her. And his quote-unquote wrath would come against her. And so this whole book of Joel is talking about that. What is the one consequence of these enemies coming against Israel? Well, the consequence was the destruction of the temple, their central government. That's a huge consequence. And the removal of their king off the throne. So I, I shared with the folks last night, because in Joel chapter 2, we, we in the Christian world, we used to sing that song, blow the trumpet in Zion, and everyone's marching around the room and blowing the trumpets and getting all excited. Except that the sounding of the shofar was that the enemies were coming. They're the ones running on the walls and taking out the city. Like we got this thing completely backwards. But God talked, it talks about in Joel, like this day um, that the Lord is coming, it's near, and that it's a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness and blackness over the mountains. And this great and mighty people from antiquity are coming to devour the land. Okay. And in in another place, and I don't remember what verse it is, but it's talking about the uh, the smoke. It's talking about the sun darkened and the moon 
not giving her glow or the moon turning to blood with the day of the Lord coming. This is all about taking down the powers of heaven. And I have to back that up with, and I don't remember if I read this last week, but let me get this. I think I did mention it, so I just want to reiterate. So, And this is the uh, what they call a, the judgment, if you will. I hate using that word even, against Babylon. But it said that how you have fallen from heaven, O bright star, son of the dawn, how you are cut down to the earth, you who made the nations prostrate. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. So this is very much language of the ancient Near East world because every king desired to be deified. And so the king's domain is heaven. So anytime you're talking about the king and his power, his council, his uh, officials, you're using language like stars and moon and sun. And whenever you talk about kings who rise up against God, you talk about the earth shaking and the sky rolling up like a scroll and the sun being darkened. That's what that language is. And so this is what we're seeing in Joel. And just to sort of pop ahead, you know, remember Matthew 24 is a quote from Joel about the sun being darkened and the moon so that it is talking about these enemies in language of heavenly language because that's the king's domain and then how these enemies are going to come they're they're going to be reduced to ashes they're going to be they've exalted themselves against god but they're going to be sent to sheol but their job was to destroy the temple and take out the government and to chastise israel until she turned from her worthless idols back to god so all this language in the book of Joel has to do with that and really much of the prophets. So it's just, um, I'm hoping people can reread the prophets in a bit of a different way, understanding that anytime we're using language of heavenly and exalting, and, you know, any, I don't know, what I can't even think of it all, is really referring to the, king, the rulers and kingdoms of the earth because the kings exalted themselves to their heavenly domain and that's where they function when Paul is talking about rulers and principalities and powers in the air he's talking about kings who are ruling over in that time it would have been Rome it would have been Caesar so we, we've just got a couple minutes left in the program and uh, you know the difficulty for a lot of people is we don't understand the language of the ancient world. We don't understand that these this, this writing style mm -hmm. is talking about things that they would not have not known. They would not... All of the gods lived in the heavens. All of the enemies of the, of the gods lived in the earth or below the earth or in Leviathan or in the seas. This was a common kind of language for the... For, it didn't matter what province you were in or a province or what part of the Mesopotamia you were in. This was common language. It was like, I said this over and over, it was like you and I talking about computers. So when John is writing in the book of Revelation, he is using that language most familiar to Israel based on... I mean, look at their history. 
How many bad kings did they have? How many times did God chastise the nation of Israel using other nations? It's kind yeah. of what we were talking about in Genesis 3.1. Right. All of a sudden there's a serpent who's in the, in, the, in the place where Adam was to rule and function, and now all of a sudden Adam and Eve are somewhere else. They're, they're outside of the place of the presence of the Lord because they weren't doing what he was, they were supposed to do. It's the same story. So now they're out from the place of the presence of the one God. They're out in the nations. And yeah, let me exactly give one more example. Well, we had Israel out in the nations for the last 2,000 years. I can tie this together, but let me hear your point. Well, I just wanted to read one more example so people understood. Uh, this is from Isaiah 2, verse 11, starting in. And it says, The man of haughty eyes is humble. The lofty ones brought low. So that's telling us somebody who's been up is coming down. For Adonai alone will be exalted in that day, the day of the Lord. For the day of Adonai Tzvaot will be against anyone proud and haughty, against anyone lifted up, and he will be humbled. Against all the cedars of Lebanon. Well, who were the cedars of Lebanon? That was the king of Assyria, and the pharaoh was also called the cedars of Lebanon. They are lofty and lifted up. Again, this is the domain of the kings. Against the oaks of Bashan, and this is interesting, against all the high mountains. So what do kings do? The kings of Assyria, king of Pharaoh, whatever. They would always build a temple, which was a high mountain, which was where their exalted location was. Remember, temples were between heaven and earth, and when you entered a temple, you entered heaven. And so against the exalted hills, and against high towers, and fortified walls, and on it goes. So this is... These examples are all over the place, and now we have a better perspective of what it's talking about. God is going to take down the rulers of this world, the nations, and he is, you know, we can bank on that, and he is going to raise himself up to rule over the cosmos, as he has formerly done. You said something last week, and you said, no, don't tell him, don't tell him. But what we were talking about, folks, was um, Dina made a statement to me, and I, I was like, you know, that, that's so perfect. She said, when you look at Israel going back into the land, try to see the Lord taking his land back from the nations first. And I thought, you know, that's exactly right, because out of the blue, or the, if you want to say the ashes of World War II, God took back his land mm -hmm. from the nation. Yep. And, and I, I like to go, this is just me, folks. I like to look at it this way. Then Great Britain said, okay, fine. Well, we're going to take 80% of it, and we're going to give it to this people called Transjordan. And the very next thing that happened was this, this, this Antichrist raised up and devoured the British Empire because it moved against God taking his land back from the nation. And so I just I see that parallel, Dana, because their move to create Transjordan or Jordan mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. out of the land that was given to Israel mm -hmm. cost them their empire. I firmly believe that because 
Hitler rose up, decimated Europe, and the thing that didn't happen was Britain was no longer the preeminent power of Europe. It lost its money, it lost its wealth, and it lost its prestige throughout the whole world as a result of, this is just me, folks, lost its prestige in the world as a result of reneging on the deal that was to give Israel back the land. Well, and, and look at the condition of, is, of Britain today, completely overrun by Islam. Yeah, it is. I mean, look at the state of affairs in London and just the devastation caused by just being overrun by an enemy. I mean, that's not a place you want to go. And uh, I think it's all the fruit of that decision. If I could just encourage the audience, go learn. Learn what happened when Emperor Hadrian took the land. Literally, he was successful in wiping the Jews off. Most of the Jews had already left by the time he carted the rest of them off to Rome. But learn about that history because then you'll understand why Palestine is called Palestine and why you have all these... There's no such people as the Palestinians. The Jews are called the Palestinians for 1,800 years. Uh, when you understand that history, and you have to understand the history, what happened in World War II from a God perspective. This is something I've studied. I've studied this with several Jewish people, too, by the way, uh, uh, very, very wise Jewish people. Victor Sharp comes to mind. But I know this history, and when you know the history, of the last 70, 80 years, it starts making sense that God help you if you move against his land. And don't, I mean, if you're going to look like anything, if you're going to dress like anything, dress as though you're in the presence of Almighty God, not first century Israel, because that's not what this is all about. It's about the Father preparing to retake the land to restore Israel and the government of Israel in order to redeem the nations. This is literally what's going on, folks. I yeah, let me just, this, this is a quote. Um, I can't remember where I got the quote, but I think it's from Mo Winkle, Sigmund Mo Winkle, who yeah. said, what Yahweh has done for Israel in history forms the basis of his kingdom, and it is recalled every year when the New Year Festival comes and he takes his seat on the throne as the victorious king. And there we have Rosh Hashanah, folks. Amen. That's our Rosh Hashanah moment, and this is Jeff Morton. No tired tonight, Dina folks. Dies. Dina dies with me. Uh, we've had some, uh, we, we have fun. We just yeah. have fun. So I'm going to edit the show and we'll get it posted. And remember, we're on iTunes now, so check out Returning to Eden on iTunes. God bless you guys. Dina, we're done. I'm done. Amen. Shalom. Shalom. Bye-bye, everyone.